Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Imagine if you had on-demand access to the hard-earned wisdom of some of the most fascinating and experienced leaders of our time. Join Chris Crosby, the founder and chairman of Crosby X, as he interviews the world's top leadership experts and business executives to glean the knowledge that will help you navigate a world in constant change. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the inaugural edition of Uncharted, uh, Leading Through Uncertainty and Change. Um, today, I am uh, excited to, to be here with Bob Bennett, um, CEO and founder of B Squared Consulting. Um, I've had the pleasure of knowing Bob now for probably five or six years as, as we've intersected careers over a number of journeys now, and um, couldn't be more excited to have you, Bob, as our first guest on the, on the show today. Um, why don't start off about telling us about yourself and uh, be squared and then we'll we'll jump into it sure brother hey number one it's great to see you um I'm, I'm I'm excited that actually zoom allows us to do this bit but uh looking also uh very forward to where we can start interacting in person again um it has been an awesome six years uh I came to you um, through the city of Kansas City uh, which I joined after 25 years in the army um, I did my first, I guess, 17 years um, in the field artillery world, uh, and then my last eight years, I was a strategic planner and uh, did a lot of work um, in Iraq with General Odierno and General Petraeus, uh, followed that up with operations uh, in Africa uh, before uh, coming to a teaching role here in the Kansas City area. Um, when I left the Army, I was the Chief Innovation Officer for Kansas City, Missouri for the better part of about four years uh, during the mayor's second term. Uh, and at the conclusion of that term, when he was term limited, uh, came out to form B squared. So essentially, we could continue uh, helping cities figure out ways to uh, better understand their environment, uh, better take action uh, in how they provide good services to people uh, and the right services to people in a lot of cases, uh, and then also help to make government function. And I think one of the things that I learned uh, over the course of the last uh, 40 years or so was that... Uh, Certainly local government seems to function um, more aggressively than other levels of government and certainly more responsively to uh, resident needs. And so that's been kind of fun to kind of cap off a career doing this thing. Awesome. Well, uh, the, the topic today uh, is, is data-driven leadership. What's, what's that mean to you? Like, let's define that. Well, I guess... It's using data um, to go after that initial premise of B-squared civic solutions, which is use data and not just anecdotes or gut feelings or uh, ideology uh, to understand what's happening around you and to define the problems uh, that an organization needs to solve. And then by using that data, figuring out how to most effectively um, create that solution uh, so that you actually have the most bang for your buck. And when you think about it, local governments are absolutely the world's most amazing nonprofit. Uh, they have to spend every dime they get in revenue, uh, but it's a very limited number of dimes. And uh, we need to use data to do that most effectively. And earlier in my career, when I was doing the Army thing, how do we use data to actually identify the critical part of an operation uh, so that we could have the effect desired where we put our people at the least amount of risk. And data allowed you to make that decision uh, the most dispassionately as you possibly could. And in most cases, the most correctly. 
there, there's a there's a whole lot to unpack there. So maybe maybe we start there. I mean, I, I think give me let's talk about an example of that um, in, in the military. I guess going back um, in the army, let's let's focus initially on where we were in Iraq in about two thousand and eight or so. Um, I had just um, joined General Petraeus's staff, and it was during the transition between he and General Odierno uh, that we were trying to figure out how to make a significant transition in the campaign. Uh, 2003, 2004, obviously, we were generally offensively oriented. Uh, we did a pretty good job of uh, destroying the Iraqi army as it was. Um, we did not do a very good job of working with the local residents and in understanding how insurgencies are created or dealing with them in their nascent form. So from about 2004 to about 2007 or so, um, we flailed at an organizational level as an army in Iraq. Um, and it was, it was a lack of a strategy. It was a lack of a guiding principle. And it was a lack of understanding of our environment. 2007, 2009 or so, we started trying to understand um, our role better, not as an occupying force, but instead almost as a midwife for democracy um, in Iraq that was trying to function. And in doing that, um, it was much more public engagement and it was much more trying to use data uh, to understand what people actually wanted. And so we had to make the team a whole lot larger. And I ended up being the deputy director of something called the Joint Interagency Task Force Iraq, where the State Department had a seat at the table. USAID had a seat at the table. The nascent government of Iraq had a seat at the table. Um, we brought in some of the minority um, tribes and organizations within Iraq and gave them a seat at the table so they could identify their needs and desires. We brought in some of our allies um, who were also committed to us, primarily on the training front, who were helping us to train Iraqi security forces. And what we came up with was almost a management by uh, Venn diagram, where we figured out what each individual entity wanted to achieve. And we were able to write down that list of places where we had a lot of intersecting needs. And that was where we, as one of the larger uh, resource providers, focused our resources. And that's where we focused on problems. We identified uh, foreign fighters uh, coming into Iraq to cause problem as a strategic uh, threat to stability in the region. Uh, we identified malign Iranian influence on the Iraqi government as a strategic threat. Uh, we identified um, some of the intertribal issues and representation as a strategic threat. And then we started trying to figure out what all of us could do individually to attack those individual threats. And as a result of that, by the time we left in 2009, um, it wasn't necessarily exactly what we thought it would be. Uh, real life has a tendency to do that to plans. <laughs> but uh, I mean, even to this day, Iraq just had their ninth successful national election. Wow. And there's been a peaceful transfer of power to a guy that at one point um, we wanted to go after as a target. But now he is trying to put together a coalition, which includes uh, members of the Sunni minority, of which he is not a part. And at one point, he desired uh, to wipe off the face of the planet. And so it may not be a democracy that looks like us, 
right. that, that was never meant to be. And uh, you know, I'm proud of the way that we use data to identify those threats and then actually figure out how to solve them. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that that's a that's an amazing transformation, right? And 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 a journey that took what a couple of years. Your role in that sense, better part of eighteen months, yeah, eighteen months, and a lot of cross stakeholder engagement in that, right? I mean, and and you know, oftentimes when we when we talk about stakeholder engagement, we're we're thinking about bureaucracies in corporate America, we're in a city and a government, right? You're talking about people that hate each other in, in some aspects. Um, Have you met a water department and a public works department fighting over the last ten dollars of a budget? That, that, that could be worse than being <laughs> on the ground in Iraq some days. <laughs> uh, but but you're talking about you know an amazing cross section of people with, with with different competing interests in a lot of ways. But but you're able to find common interests, common ground, get this massive organism working together. What was the data aspect to that? I mean, what data did you have? What did you look for? Like, and, and how did you kind of get everybody on the same page with, with, with what you were doing? I mean, it was, it was an incredibly complex data problem. There were literally thousands of data sets, um, many of which we didn't use, uh, but our partners used them. So we would collect things like voting registration uh, rates or voter participation rates or census data when you're looking at the size of different um, uh, communities. Um, and when you're looking at the subdivision of community like Baghdad with mm -hmm. so many different uh, diverse neighborhoods, um, how large are those neighborhoods? So what does representation really mean? And figuring that out. We didn't do necessarily anything with that data. We gave it to our State Department colleagues and that was how they managed their engagements. And for them, the requirement was, I need to know how large the population is in Sadr City, and I need to compare that to Kadamia and Adamia. And so we had to figure those types of things out, but then it was someone else who did the work using that data. On the military side of the house, um, it was the size of the forces we were engaging, how many foreign fighters were getting through, how many foreign fighters were we stopping at the border? Um, which then led us to ask, you know, the how questions when we're talking to the Iraqi government. How are you stopping folks? This is what we're, the data are telling us with respect to transit routes for foreign fighters who are coming in from the Al-Qaeda side of the house to create Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So where are you prioritizing your border enforcement? And is there a technique that is being used in some of those more porous regions? And if so, how do we change what we're doing to overcome that technique? And in some cases it was surveillance, in some cases it was more active patrolling, in some cases it was very um, targeted kinetic operations, focusing on individuals who maybe were um, key players in that uh, transition of foreign fighters into the Iraqi environment. How did you get them on board with that approach? Uh, there's going to be a big gulf there in, in, in cultural and, and I mean, you've got people that maybe are trained or untrained, you know, they're used to doing things a certain way. A lot of this is all new. Like how, how do you kind of mentor and, and get folks, you know, to, to leverage this new data and insights and point it in, in the right direction? Well, we first tried to understand what their self-interest was. What was it that they wanted to achieve? And that took a lot more listening than talking. And it took a very non-traditional American response of saying, maybe what we want isn't the answer. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, that was that, that that was kind of an eye-opening moment. Uh, but you know, I have kids, so I've kind of been figuring that out too that way. And uh, it, it it that that was kind of we asked them what they wanted to achieve. We started most meetings by doing a survey and by doing data collection of that focus group in the room. And from there, we asked them essentially to give us what their wisdom told them. And mm -hmm. it's, it's the same thing when you look at a city government. Um, there is wisdom in that engineer who is managing a traffic light system and, or a water system who just knows by their experience where the next break is likely to be. But they have not necessarily articulated the specific indicators that tell them that. And by actually having that conversation, asking those questions, you get to that point. And quite frankly, the things that we were able to do inside city government came from sitting down and listening to the Iraqi Border Patrol, mm -hmm. who told us, I don't have enough trucks to do the patrolling that you Americans think is that successful. What I need are not just trucks, but the drivers and the ability for those folks to know that they are safe. Yeah. And then we'd ask the next question. Okay, cool. How, what, what does it take for them to feel safe? Well, they need to know that their colleagues will not sell them out to another neighboring tribe or to somebody else. So we want to make sure that we actually kind of control who does the hiring and keep it within a certain tribal area, which in the United States, obviously, we could not do with our contracting rules. But in Iraq, it was totally acceptable. Hmm. Okay, cool. Um, and we actually picked this up from the Brits. Um, one of their planning technology or their planning methodologies is called five questions. And every time someone brings you a point that they make in an argument, you ask them a why question. And by the time you get to the end of five to seven whys, you've really drilled into the essence of a problem set. And maybe that thing which is incredibly useful and incredibly insightful is for them just part of their inherent day and they never thought about it right. as being an insight. And so you have to you have to ask that fifth to seventh question to get down to that point. And for us, it was, I need more trucks and I need to know who's driving them so that I can control them effectively using our culturally um, acceptable way of doing business, which is doing it within the tribe so that the local um, sheik was both the employer, the leader, and the resourcer. So he had power over three areas, which met the cultural dynamic. Mm. That's uh, that's fascinating. The, the the five whys is actually uh, made itself it made its way into to, to the startup world as well. Uh, Eric Reese uh, wrote a book uh, probably twelve years ago now called uh, the the Lean Startup, I think. And uh, in one of the chapters in there, he talks about you know continue to ask why until you peel back those layers of abstraction and really identify the root issue, right? You know, my car died. Well, why? Well, the battery died. Well, why? <laughs> Was it old? Was it the alternators? You know, so I think that's a, um, that's a, that's a fantastic technique. And uh, so, so how did it, I mean, so, so what, what ended well with, with this as you transition this over? So, so you've got this data, you, you've diffused that you got a lot of competing ideas, Managed to align those. You, you diffuse responsibility for for the execution down to the local, you know, stakeholders that, that should own it, 
right? Um, at the end of the day. And how do you transition? Like, how, how does that end well? Um, and, and then on the flip side of that, what didn't? Like, and sort of what's a lesson learned out of, out of the exercise? Well, I think the things that went well is there was certainly a embracing of what it takes to manage a community by the nascent Iraqi government. And what ended well was they did a really good job of pushing us out uh, to go and do that, um, mm -hmm. much to the frustration of some of our uh, partners, especially on the U.S. and the Allied side, who didn't feel like maybe they were being either repaid in terms of loyalty or some other, again, Western concept that wasn't necessarily part of the equation from their perspective. Um, and that frustration and that messiness uh, perceived from our perspective, I think, is the success. Hmm. Again, you had a, a relatively low, I guess it was 48% turnout election in Iraq just a few weeks ago, where a party which we didn't necessarily like while we were there won a majority, but is actually including the minority partners um, in the governance plan moving forward. Um, it's it's a functional democracy. It's not necessarily what we designed. It's not what we wanted in 2003 or 2004. But the, the fact that it is their democracy working for them, that ended well. What didn't end well was it was kind of chaotic there in 2009 and 2010. And the establishment of the, um, the uh, caliphate in northern Iraq, the fall of Mosul in 2009-2010, uh, the human suffering that took place as um, our departure, which was a little bit more hasty than we had envisaged, um, resulted in, in, in some tragedies, a, a great number of tragedies for a large number of people. Uh, but the fact that our participation in, in overcoming those tragedies was minimized um, on our end of the uh, equation by our Congress and by our political leadership is probably that um, uh, crucible event for Iraq that allowed today to happen as a success. Um, not pretty, but uh, in the end, successful. Expand on that for me. So, so I do want to come back to, to, to one of the themes you mentioned earlier about um, how the end result might be a different vision than, you know, what, what we as kind of, because you're really an outside, I mean, you, you played a role there, but, but really this was about getting the local environment um, to, to be able to transition and, and take care of themselves and sort of build out their, their, their new democracy and what that meant to you, which I think is a uh, fascinating thing. And I want to come back to that, but, but this kind of crucible moment, like this trans, like you're going through a lot of pain, meaning not you specifically, but, but the, uh, you know, the, the local um, constituents. And then on the other side of that, now they're having free elections, right? I mean, maybe expand on that a little bit for me, what, what you mean and, and what you think the importance of that is. I think that when we designed what we thought would be the transition plan, we envisioned something lasting from 2009 till about 2000 and yeah, 13 or 14, by the time that we had left completely with our armed forces. And the idea was that 
in terms of securing the border, in terms of focusing in on those foreign fighters and the malign Iranian influence, because the intertribal conflicts had largely solved themselves um, by 2009. Um, so we'd actually, you know, downsized our Jayadif down to just the two strategic problem sets. Um, but the Obama administration changed the rule and said, no, we are pulling everything out in 2009. So those elements that DOD and the State Department thought we would still be doing in terms of training, in terms of augmenting, in terms of mentoring the military forces to go through this process were just pulled out instantaneously. Hmm. And so the success that we had had against the foreign fighters, uh, we'd essentially eliminated Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, but by pulling out as quickly as we did, we created a vacuum which created ISIS. And it was that ISIS moment which took over northern Iraq. And for both the Sunni and the Shia major uh, majority in the south, um, they initially saw the problem as, well, they're you know going after people who are Kurdish or northern Iraqis, and we don't necessarily like them as much anyway. But by the time that Mosul had fallen, it became this unifying Iraqi concept of, okay, we have to go back and get Mosul. We have to eliminate this caliphate. We, as a community, have a stake in this. Um, prior to our departure of 809, the Kurds would have been quite happy with an independent Kurdistan, and probably at some level still are. But because of ISIS, the Kurds had to work with the um, Shia and Sunni from southern Iraq, and together those three, with a very minimal amount of outside support, pushed out uh, ISIS, destroyed the caliphate, and now you had a new Iraq, which, unlike the Iraq from the Balfour Declaration days of the Brits, was not arbitrary lines on a map, but was instead a collection of people who had overcome this caliphate. And so there had been a common purpose that was not externally driven by the United States. It was externally driven by this caliphate, but even that had, um, I mean, al-Baghdadi was an Iraqi when he was running his operations out of Mosul. And so they had to work together to overcome that. And the United States was not going to be um, the driving factor in eliminating that force. And so that was that crucible event yeah. um, where they had to look at each other, not necessarily as age old foes, but wait, there is something to this Iraq thing. And now it has real meaning instead of something imposed on us by the Brits in 1918. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, you know, I'm a, a Ron Heifetz fan in adaptive leadership. And, and he Love talks, Ron Heifetz. He was the guy we used to read in the army quite a bit. Yeah, well, there you go. And, and this this kind of strikes a chord there because, you know, he talks a lot about putting the work back where it belongs, right? Like, so the, the United States were in their kind of peacekeeping. I use that in air quotes, right? Yeah. But, but the real day job needs to be this this ownership of your of your country and, and the functioning and and peacekeeping needs to, to reside with the people that own the country that live there, right? And so a part of this exercise, it seems, is, is you kind of building capacity, you know, with, with the local government and stakeholders. Um, and then along comes this common enemy, 
you know, this common threat really to their existence that, that, that brings these otherwise combative individuals together. I, you know, part of me sort of reflectively wishes that uh, it seems like when COVID hit in the United States, that should have been a unifying event, right? Because we have a common threat to, to, to all 330 million. In some ways million. it was, in other ways, not so much. Right. And, and somehow that turned out to, I mean, for a lot of reasons, I think, unified a lot of people, but then fractured, you know, a lot of, a lot of our culture um, as well. So how does this then, you know, play forward into, I mean, these lessons learned play forward into to Kansas City and, and your role in, in government there? So, yeah, I um, left the army. Um, I was teaching at Fort Leavenworth. I was, I was actually teaching what we did in Iraq um, and got a chance to meet several local leaders uh, through those uh, trainings because we brought some local leaders into Fort Leavenworth where I was teaching. And uh, through that experience, I had a chance to meet some members of Mayor James's administration. And when uh, my predecessor went to go work for Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles, um, I responded to the opportunity to be the chief innovation officer in Kansas City. And as a part of the interview process and talking with Mayor James, um, the important task for that um, role was not to just put tech into place or not just to play with technology in an environment which is known as Kansas City, but instead it was how do we prepare our community for what we want it to look like 20 years hence, not just going through the daily grind of having police cars on the street, filling potholes, making sure the water is clean, um, having a world-class parks department, all of those things which are almost the foundational assumptions of what the city of Kansas City could do. But how do we actually set the conditions so we can attract new businesses, so that we could actually interact with residents who live on cell phones and who interact with um, their elected officials via Twitter and who order their goods via Amazon or other uh, vendors. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, a, a piece of that, which got even enhanced uh, during the COVID years. Um, how do we bring our government to do that same level of interaction so that we are competent to serve 21st century people? And what he really wanted was a strategy. He didn't, he wasn't looking for technology for technology's right. sake. And so as part of the interview process, it was back to that question is the, the whys, you know, what is our biggest problem? Well, by the time we got down to the seventh or eighth why it was, we have a grand total of about between 500 and $800,000 worth of disposable income in the city that is not spoken for in all of our other requirements to make a fundamental transformation for a city that is digitally engaged, that is more efficient thereby freeing up dollars to do mo the modernization that's required. Because one of the earlier questions told us that our infrastructure was failing. And at the time, there was no ARPA. There was no Infrastructure Act. Uh, but the crisis had already come to us in Kansas City because of the weird nature of our community. We're one of the least densely populated communities in the United States. And our infrastructure was aging very rapidly. So and incredibly how, diverse as well, right? I mean, you've got the downturn over in core, you've got some high crime areas, and then you've got rural, right? I mean, really 
Kansas City, uh, people don't think of it that way, but, but, but I mean, you, you've got the data and the math. It's how many square miles and how many people, like once you kind of get out of certain pockets, it's incredibly diverse. It's, it's a little microcosm of, the, of, of American in, in many ways, which, which poses- Well, and that's the data set. Unique challenges, right? Yeah, and, and that was why we needed the data and we needed to contextualize the data and we needed to understand the variations both in time and space um, across our communities. And we found that we had as diverse concerns and needs within uh, the boundaries of Kansas City and Missouri as you have in states or nations, just as you stated. Um, so, you know, what are the three or four things that we can do with that very small amount of budget to improve economic opportunities, to improve uh, the educational foundation for kids in our city so that they can be a 21st century workforce. Um, you need technology for that. You need connectivity for that. So we chose to do a um, connectivity activity. Um, half of that we tied to our digital inclusion coalition, which focused on the east side of our community, which is the poorer area of town. And it focused on hardware, it focused on training, it focused on getting um, connectivity either through fiber uh, to the home, which we did as part of a public-private partnership with Google and other partners. Uh, but also we did a, um, a public Wi-Fi, a connectivity, a data analytics, a, a, a holistic understanding of our environment pilot in the heart of our downtown. Uh, largely because I could do it cheaply. I had a 2.2 mile long hole in the ground, which was the creation of our streetcar starter line. And so we could do testing there without disrupting the lives of our residents. And we knew that if the testing were um, successful, and if the pilot were successful, the outcome of it would be significantly larger than any investment that we made and would serve as an example so that we could then replicate it elsewhere throughout our community. Um, and so we did those two activities, uh, which became the focus of my little office. And uh, we had a lot of success. By the time uh, the mayor left, we had the 54 smartest blocks in America in the heart of our downtown. Uh, we had digitized a lot of the very good things that we had done as a city in terms of using data to understand ourselves and to guide our budgeting process and to guide our prioritization project of uh, our prioritization of projects within the city. But we had also made headway in eliminating our digital divide, um, an effort that when you look back on 2020 and 2021, with the impact of COVID, uh, significantly uh, mitigated uh, the disaster that occurred in so many other communities where you didn't have the poorest uh, kids uh, able to connect to school. And all of those Google laptops and laptops from other providers and um, the network that we had established, those kids got to go to school and they had the tools and they had the connections to be able to do that. Um, so coming out of the pandemic, yeah, our kids suffered from Zoom school compared to in-person bits. Uh, but you look at other communities that did not have the connectivity that we have right. and we're in a lot better shape. Yeah, and I think that digital infrastructure and connectivity is is probably one of the hallmarks of Kansas City's success, right? I, I mean, when I when I look at because data data is a chicken and egg problem, you know, in a lot of ways. 
right? Because you can have a problem that you, you want to go solve with data, but, you know, as you know, working particularly, I think, in, in cities and, and in a government, sometimes the data just doesn't exist or it's locked up in an Excel file on somebody's PC that's being manually generated. And then on the other side of it, you know, you've got these smart city projects, you know, that, that come in and want to censor up the environment, uh, which I've been guilty of. And we'll, we'll talk more about some of the challenges with that approach. Um, and then expect to go solve problems, right? And, and so I think what, what I've observed is, or experienced is that kind of finding the middle of that path is, is the challenge, right? Like, how do, you, how do you identify, you know, what is, and this is, I think the question is, like, how do you identify what the strategic long-term strategy is versus like solving acute problems day-to-day with data? Um, and then I want to talk about, the, the road, you know, some of the bumps that, that we ran into along the way with that. Well, I, I guess I'll I'll say very quickly and, and turn it over to you to talk through that that experiential bit that we did. It, it comes down to that same Venn diagram piece that we did in Iraq. Um, what is the mayor's vision for a community 10, 20, 30 years hence? Uh, because truly those folks in public service who are doing it right are frequently talking about establishing the foundation for things which are well beyond the term limit um, under which that they're mandated. And so it's creating that generational change vision and having other people embrace it. um, That's the first piece of that. And for us in Mayor James's time, it was a connected um, base of residents, all of whom have access to the benefits of the 21st century, all of whom have the opportunities to get the education, the training, the interview opportunities, the transportation network, which became another project, um, to get to where those jobs are located. Um, And that was sort of the mayoral piece of that. And then the city manager side of that, and that project-based piece that you just alluded to is, okay, one of the things that we have a problem with is a transportation system which right now is deficient in getting people from our challenged communities to where the work is. So how do we change that? What are those projects which allow us to make that transition Um, from a education and from a uh, sheer connectivity base? What is the problem with that last mile? Uh, For many folks, the fiber may be at your doorstep, but the cost to attach that fiber to a device in your home even if it's given to you for free, is exorbitant. And you have to choose between that and eating. So maybe it's a free public Wi-Fi, which may not be as fast as that fiber, but it is sufficient for you to get on a Zoom call, to do a web research project so that you can write a paper, which teaches you about particle physics. And so the next great uh, Nobel laureate is coming from East to Troost. Right. If you can do that, That's kind of what we're trying to do. So the project then is the Wi-Fi until we get that per unit cost for the fiber connection down to a point that achieves that longer term vision. So I think think that was our piece of it. And it's where is that common ground between the short-term projects and that long-term vision? And I mean, obviously you are part of that that journey with us, especially on the the 54 blocks. uh, Right. Uh, How did you see it? Well, I, I want to talk more about the 54 blocks, but I, but I think you're right, because because when I look back, we did a number of, of data projects and analytics projects for, for the city across different departments. Um, and the two that I think 
were most successful and successful subjective, right? But but I think that, that, that had the biggest impact were digital inclusion, right? Remember when we went through that exercise and mapped broadband access across the entire spectrum of, of the county um, so that, and then we've started bringing in other data sets, right? Like we talked about crime, we brought in transportation networks. Like we really wanted to paint the picture around you know, the, the digital divide. And, and I think that resonated. And, and I think it was successful because it, it provided an objective data layer that could, could foster debate around policy, right? About interventions, about things that could happen. And then you can measure those results over time, right? And it was something that aligned with, with the mayor's vision, you know, and the leadership vision in, 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 in the city. And, and so I think that was definitely one of the ones that was more widely uh, adopted because a lot of what we've experienced in these data projects, as you know, is what I call the now what moment, which is you deliver something and then it's now what, Oh shit. You mean I got to go change the way I work. <laughs> um, but then the other project that, that's still going today is, uh, is the micro mobility transportation analytics and insights, uh, the e-scooters, the bikes, you know, we work still work very closely with, with Public Works and that team around leveraging the data coming from all those e-scooters to help understand policy around transportation and mobility, but also the impact of, of bringing these types of things into a community and the, and the economic mobility that that can provide a community. Um, and so I think those very much tie back into the macro themes that, that you mentioned, right, around d- digital uh, inclusion and, and and access and connectivity along with with transportation, some things that did not go well, um, and I think is is indicative and of of leadership challenges and, and lessons learned would be, you know we uh, we built an algorithm to predict potholes, <laughs> we built an algorithm to forecast crime, you know we. Uh, we built an algorithm to, to, to assign a probability on whether or not a, a property was vacant. Now, these are all projects that, that you and I and handful people didn't sit around and cook up, you know, in, in, in the bar one night or in your office. Like these were, these were projects where, you know, again, coming back to your ability to, to bring multiple stakeholders together in a room and talk about what's important, what can we do, how do we execute. Um, these are all projects that bubbled out of that. Right. Crime was on the rise. So we wanted to kind of forecast that. It turns out that there's a in Kansas City is a bit unique because there's such a big bifurcation between the police department and, and the city. Um, so that went almost nowhere. Right. Because we got we never got buy in. We never got the buy in. Yeah. From the other key stakeholders there. It, it was almost us trying to be prescriptive. And, and, and I think that that caused some pushback. Um, you know, the the property thing came right out of the office of performance management, like, you know, you guys can do this. It's going to solve all these problems. Even had a list of the problems it's all right. But then we got into it and the city came back and said, you know, you really don't think citizens would like us predicting this about their house. And so, okay, well that, you know, there's privacy implications is the big brother implications. Like, well, that makes sense. Maybe we should have thought of that before we, (laughs) Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now what? It's like, oh, what do I do with this now that? Yeah. Now what? Back. Okay. So put that one back on the shelf. Uh, and then potholes, right? You know, which which we got got a lot of coverage for for, for that algorithm and forecasting it, and it was hundred percent accurate, right? We, we learned a lot about potholes, but it, it was pretty good. 
And but, but we, what we ran into was, okay, we can forecast this, give you a relative degree of certainty, like you said. And, and we also it learned a lot about- 80% or something. Yeah, it was above 80% within a time range, right? We didn't predict it down to the day, but you know, next month, 80% probability is going to be a pothole here. And the reason we were doing that is because in our original engagement with the public works, there were ways to administer preventative maintenance on the road. And then that was less damaging and less costly than after the pothole opened up and you're sending out the road crews to patch it, right? So there was- And it was predictive. So you could tell people when their road was going to be messed up so they could actually plan. Yep. So we delivered it and the thing fell flat on its face. What happened? Public works department was like, wait a minute. Now you're telling me that an algorithm is going to tell me when I'm going to be doing streets as opposed to the way I've been doing it for 30 years? Yes. It's that Inter- in- Internal issues caused us to lose that project. So how do you, how do you f- account for that and, and factor up front? Because now what we're talking about is you got a bunch of data. And you know it's good data it's, and it's effective where if it's applied you're going to have a quantifiable impact to the community and to the city. And, and you've got stakeholders that are too, what, too, too threatened to, to change their, their, their way of life, the, the value, there's a values conflict here. I mean, what's underneath that? And like, how do, you, how do you navigate that and avoid these kind of costly, what turned out to be a costly experiment? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I almost liken it to where we were talking earlier about COVID, where you have a problem, a solution presents itself in the form of a vaccine. And yet, despite that vaccine, because it's causing me to do something with which I'm not necessarily comfortable or it changes the way I, it it forces me to accept another viewpoint, I refuse to change. And that has been true, obviously, in the last year and a half with, you know, about a third of our uh, community uh, in the United States, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, In the case of our pothole project, it was true within the uh, leadership of the Public Works Department, because no organization wants, you know, their boss's boss's boss, in this case, the city manager, to dive into the question of why aren't you working on X street today? Mm. I can read the data too. And I know that that street's likely to have a pothole. At which point the public works director who has been fielding so many calls from so many neighborhoods. And there are parts of the community who have learned how to manipulate the 311 system with everyone putting a call in from a different phone number at different time intervals. to get a higher priority for pothole filling. Um, and oh, by the way, some of those people are also heavy donors to um, campaigns for council members. Right. And so we solved the physical problem without appreciating the negative impact of the political problem. And so we solved the physics without accounting for an atmosphere. Yeah. And I think like any right. human being, you can't breathe without an atmosphere. And that's what happened to us in that particular activity. Yeah. And again, our, my, the team was not willing to take as much risk in 2019 because 2019 was an election year. 
and with the mayor being term limited, and with many of the um, senior leaders reported to the city manager, who had also clearly articulated his intent to move on to another position, that leadership sponsorship at the top levels was no longer driving the department directors to embrace change. Is, is there a lesson in, in change management there, which is- Oh my God, yes. You're presented a sea of opportunities and things that you want to change and impact. How do you filter through that? Because you're right. I mean, there's, there's you know, as Heifetz would say, there's, there's technical problems, right? Which is there's known problems and known solutions and you break an arm, you go to the doctor, you get a cast. And then there's these adaptive challenges, which really require people to dig in and do, do work, right? To change. And um, those are always met by systemic roadblocks and challenges that you have to exercise leadership to move, move a community through. And, and so I think each of these, um, you know, is an example of that where, and I think a topic like digital inclusion and connectivity resonates pretty broadly, right? Like that's not a- only that, but it had total sponsorship. Uh, from both the mayor and the council. It was a priority because we knew it would set the conditions for Kansas City for the next yeah. 25 years. And that the the specific project of potholes, had no. um, well, it could have if you would have looked at it as a systems change. That the loss of the city manager and the articulated loss of the city manager prior to that thing taking off it goes back to your the now what problem. You're the dog that caught the car. What do I eat first? Yeah. Um, you're forcing public works to change the way they manage their staff and change the way they manage their work. That's a fundamental, a fundamental reorganization it's of so a fair. department which has a lot of people in it and has its own political force. Which again, if you if you add political force into a physics equation. It doesn't exist. But right. in terms of this application, not only does it exist, it was greater than our ability to solve the technical problem, which is when is there going to be a pothole? Yeah. Uh, and you also kind of implied another challenge, too, which is like the transparency that having data and access to data exposes threatens a lot of people. Because I remember we were having conversations with different departments and they didn't want people to see how they were doing their job, right? But, oh, it's great that we can have this dashboard, but, but now that means my boss does too. Or, yeah. or it means it's going to go out on the open data portal and citizens have more things to scream at me about. And I think that was a challenge that, you know, so the day is, is, is difficult to overcome. Like you've got to get people bought in to, again, those common interests and priorities and themes and to, to kind of show them how their world's going to be better, um, or how at least the broader ecosystem and their role in it is going to going to improve as part of that. Well, it comes back to a hyphens thing. Um, in the case of when we created the data culture in Kansas City, which took about seven years, yeah, um, you had Troy Schulte as a city manager talking about it in terms of its results and highlighting the good that could come out of it in terms of all city operations. Um, and in doing so, he very clearly articulated that this is not a challenge or a means to restructure your department budgets. It's not, it is not going to be used as an evaluation tool in your leadership. But once he had become a lame duck, 
Right. All those folks who were running departments were now going to be working for a new city manager. And the idea that that data were available could cause them to lose out in negotiations for city budget. And so they did not have that top level vision piece uh, that Hyphen talks about as how do you get people to do the right things? You insulate them from threats, you reinforce the ideas of what the ultimate goal is, and you clearly articulate both the goal and how you're going to measure it. If you take the leader out of that equation, all of a sudden that dashboard becomes a threat. Right. I think that's that's an important point. Let's um, let's play that forward then. You know, to your role as as vaccine hero and on the other side of the state line, right? Because these are all valuable lessons. And, and I think, I sure, I know I, I was able to kind of apply those to, to how we we helped some, some COVID response and particularly in, in Wyandotte County KCK under, under your leadership there. I mean, to, I, I guess the fun thing with that. that was it was, we took the data lessons we had learned in KCMO in terms of being able to understand our environment, pull those stakeholders together. And that allowed us in probably November and December of 2020 to better figure out where we were likely to have vaccine reticence, even as the vaccine was just being brought out only for healthcare providers and only at hospitals. Uh, We were already working uh, in collaboration with you guys as to where, where were we going to have the greatest challenges as a community so that we could start to work on the education process and more importantly on the delivery process to minimize those barriers that would cause someone to not want to get vaccinated. We knew that in the um, uh, 64011, 64012, 64015 corridor, that transportation was a problem that um, trust of the government wasn't at the highest in the community. And we knew that uh, reaching out through the media, through digital means was not sufficient to get people to come in and get vaccinated. They needed to talk to someone on a phone. They needed to talk to a family member, someone who they trusted, or they needed to get someone to knock on their door almost as if they were canvassing for a vote. And then we figured out other neighborhoods and other regions where simply sending out an SMS message when someone was eligible would be sufficient to get them to a vaccine site. And so we physically located our three vaccine sites in areas that were not necessarily the the three exact centers of of the community, but were the three centers where they would have the most impact based on a look at the census data, based on a look of um, civic trust data. So some uh, things that were very, um, there were things you could get through surveys, there were things you could get through a reading of social media stuff, things that a lot of political figures would use um, to figure out where trust factors were low. So we would go in a more convenient spot for them, um, knowing that the folks who trusted the vaccine and trusted the government would drive four extra miles. They're going to show up. (laughs) They're going to show up. No worries about them. And so um, the first piece of what we did that I loved the way you guys looked at the problem set was how do I place these locations in a place where people will be wanting to respond to it because it's convenient 
and they trust the location. Um, so much so that we did not vaccinate um, in a public health building or in City Hall. We chose an old Kmart. We chose an armory, which was already a known quantity in the community because there were a lot of quinceañadas uh, that were held there. So people were used to going there. Um, it was right next to a bus stop. It was a place that people trusted because they had had happy memories there. And so we established a vaccine site there. Um, in the western bit of the county, we chose an old uh, Best Buy because it was in a place that had easy access to parking. We knew a lot of the folks going to that site would likely be driving. And so we had a large parking lot. It was easy for those folks to get vaccinated. Um, and then the second bit, and I think you guys did a beautiful job with this bit, was almost, and it's, it's market analysis. All, all the marketeers in the world who are watching the podcast today would be like, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's 101, dude. It was figuring out it's not 101 for most governments, but but it is. Yeah. For a marketing organization, it is for you guys. It, was. it is, yeah. It was, hey, these guys will respond to text messages, so we send them texts. These guys need phone calls, and these guys need a little bit of something else. And so for the first group, we sent text messages when they became eligible. For the second group, we had you guys establish a call center and actually engage with people and respond to questions and get it, again, make it easy. Set right. up the appointment for me. Tell me when I need to show up. And then, oh, by the way, those two data sets then funneled into the vaccine site itself. So there was only one data set, which was managing the when someone needs to show up to get their jab in the arm so they can move on with their life. And it minimized the time they were on the ground. Yeah. We ended up having people do, on average, I think it was 20 minutes on the ground, which included the um the uh 15 minute observation time yeah the observation period if yeah. people just come in we'd have enough lanes i had enough staff pop 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 go sit down have a nice day and, and i think that was an example of us partnering with you is to create a lot of data mm -hmm. right because you had like like the planning around where to where to where to locate the sites i think was incredible right because you had the outcome in mind you had the end in mind which is we want to vaccinate as much of the population as possible. Here's the barriers to that. Here's what we think we can do to overcome those barriers and to get more people in the door. And then you're right, when it moved into that engagement funnel, right? The, bringing interest forms in, identifying the different demographics and outreach, what's working, what's not. We even dialed that into the point where we knew if we were gonna send an outbound SMS blast, we knew a percentage of those were going to end up calling us to, to book the appointment. And so we could throttle the call volume <laughs> based off of, you know, the real time staffing and, and response rate. So, you know, we got Brian behind the scenes, well, you know, with a little on off switch throttling the thing. Um, but uh, but no, I think that was incredible. And you guys, I mean, came out early, strong early, like from, from a vaccination because we had you had the wait list. Um and, and you had an incredibly efficient operations on the ground at each one of these locations, which again was all data driven, right? Enabled, uh, enabled by the platform that, that we ended up building a lot of on the fly for you guys. Oh, on, the flies, was, on the fly is I think a little bit disingenuous. It wasn't quite on the fly. It was incredibly adaptive. Let's put adaptive it Adaptive and, and yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. We, nobody knew what we were logging into, right? But uh, but, but we got it done. And, and like you said, also got that done in such a way that it provided an experience for residents that 
they could trust. You know, they knew they knew it was branded. It was coming from from from, from the county. It was it met them where they were at and where they were comfortable. You know, because this touched every aspect of the community from you know 16 year olds 18 year olds through 90 something eventually 12 year olds dude we did a lot of 12 year olds there towards the end of my time there towards the end right um and so using that and you know putting together those cross-functional dashboards that that um uh, that you mentioned i think was was critical and and i think Largely, we view that as, as a company of one of our six big successes as well. Just just how we were able to collaborate, which actually kind of brings that though. Is the, the dashboard wasn't the outcome. The dashboard was a tool which allowed the the, the 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 health department to take steps and to measure those steps and to execute on a timeline, with the specific outcome in mind being higher than 75% vaccination rate for the county. Absolutely. And I think too, so you're right, because I always say dashboards are where good data goes to die, right? Because it's not about the dashboards, it's about what you do with it. And, you know, one of the the things that always, I kind of sit back and watch these days now is, you know, there's data and then there's the interpretation of data. And the interpretation of data tends to be subjective, Data can tell you some stuff, like if you're hitting a goal or not. But sometimes, like when you're looking at vaccination data, you're looking at populations, and you're trying to set policy around that. You're going to again have competing values, competing interests. And one thing, uh, you know, and you mentioned this this theme with Iraq, right? You're like they've got a democracy now. It doesn't look like ours, but it works for them. Mm-hmm. You know, or they've got a system in place now that isn't what I would have done, or but it but it works for them. I think policy and, and providing data is, is is notionally similar, right? One of the, the things I, I have to work with um, our team on is not, not trying to intervene with policy, right? We're going to provide the tools and the data to let, you know, we can guide, but but, um, but we don't set policy. And, and we had a new member of our team that, that waded into those waters and got his hands back pretty quickly. Um, because, well, you know, you, you should do this population next because then here's the data. I was like, no, dude, you're going to get, you're going to hurt <laughs> if you go down that path. Right. And, and sure enough, you learned that lesson, but I think that is an important lesson, right. Is, is really understanding where you need to step back and be objective and listen and provide the infrastructure and the data versus letting the local policy individuals, which which policy gets set both from data, but also, again, those, those competing interests and, and values sort of let that play out. Uh, I wonder if you have a reaction to that. No, I, go back to, you know, our initial phone calls before we had this, you know, the, the, the Zoom call. Um, data is a tool, just as policy is a tool. The thing that is consistent between my Army days and my KCMO days and my Wyandotte days is things worked best when you use data to be dispassionate to make a decision. And if that decision is a tactical or strategic decision like it was in Iraq, or if it's a policy decision um, like it was within KCMO, or whether it was a specific uh, large project like it was with the vaccine effort. Being able to set that vision and define what you want to achieve almost takes you down to the point of writing the equation first 
before you start collecting data. Yes. So even if the equation has some variables still within it, so all you're looking at is a trend and not a specific or defined number, but allows you to modify your policy when the trend is achieving what you want to achieve for the community, then you're in the right place. And it is a leadership challenge to embrace data and to embrace the fact that it may not give you the answer you want, mm. but that's okay because you know it's it's the Rolling Stones. You don't get what you want; you get what you need. Right. And um, when it comes to governing human beings, when it comes to trying to meet people's needs, people are weird. They're going to they're going to move the problem for you. And so, to your point, you know you don't. You don't set policy with data. You understand the environment and you inform policy making with data. That it's the leadership piece that's the most critical. And it's being able to be transparent in that subjectivity and in that interpretation of the data and in the interpretation of the dashboard to be able to gain the trust of folks you're leading. And that doesn't matter if you're a mayor running a city and you're trying to talk through the priorities, which are going to get you to the next century, or if you're a health department trying to figure out how we're going to get the most number of people vaccinated as quickly as humanly possible, or if you're trying to win a military campaign. You have to be able to have that conversation that's transparent so that a lot of the pettiness and the jealousies and the bureaucratic infighting and that those obstacles that we, you know, met and defeated us in the... Um, in the police case study and in the pothole case study, um, that, that you get over that by focusing on real problems and solving. Yeah. I think on that note, you're probably the only person I know that we can go from Iraq to potholes to vaccination and, and have a common leadership thread here. Uh, it's It's been uh, absolutely great, Bob, having you, having you on today. Uh, any, great any with you, brother. Yeah. In person soon, I hope. Uh, any, any closing thoughts? Anything you want to do? Less, less wisdom to impart? Oh, I don't know about wisdom. I, I, I think that the, the one thing we've learned is the trend um, is positive at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, at, we will, we as human beings are inclined to want the best for one for another. And I think that, uh, you know, by getting to the point where we got to with Wyandotte, we validated that. Yeah. And I think that governments on the whole and organizations on the whole um, are going to figure out how to do this uh, because it just makes sense. And as we have a rising workforce that is already data inclined and they are already used to ingesting information in this format, that they will make it a part of their uh, process and that when you and I are retired and living on the beach, uh, we can have great confidence in right. uh, the folks who are running the show after we're gone. We'll continue doing our job and setting the stage for them, right? Is to get the foundation in place and, and share these lessons learned that, that hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll move, move, move the world forward. Um, well, thank you again, Bob. How do people get a hold of you? Um, just email me, Bob at bbcivicsolutions.com, or uh, fill up your mailbox, and I'm sure you'll forward them. 
<laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. And uh, we'll talk soon. This episode has ended, but your journey to accelerating your career and reaching your full potential continues. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. If you found value in this podcast, let others know about us. Watch out for our next episode.